Welcome to the September episode of International Voices. My name is Udo Fluck. I oversee the Office of Global and Cultural Affairs in Arts Missoula, and I am the host and moderator of this podcast series. To listen to episodes from earlier this year or last year, please visit artsmissoula.org, click on Global and Cultural Affairs, and visit Radio and Podcasts. International Voices is a monthly podcast brought to you through a collaboration of Global and Cultural Affairs in Arts Missoula and The Trail 1033. Last month, we started a new three-part series with a focus on cultures and the environment. Today's podcast is the second part of this three-part series, and my guest is Nathan Rott, a journalist working as a reporter for National Public Radio. The focus for today's podcast is on national and international wildfires and the warming of the climate. Born and raised in Missoula, Montana, Rod graduated from the University of Montana. He prefers to be outside at just about every hour of the day. Prior to working at NPR, he worked a variety of jobs, including wildland firefighting, which allows him a unique perspective, having been on the front lines. Based at NPR West in Culver City, California, Rod spends a lot of his time on the road, covering everything from breaking news stories like wildfires to in-depth issues like the management of endangered species and many points in between. Rod did stories in Australia about fires burning into rainforest and other areas flames aren't usually able to penetrate. That speaks to bigger issues scientists have been warning about for a while with wildfires. That a warming climate means part of the world that used to not burn are now susceptible to fire. He also did some reporting on the forest's ability to recover from fire. Much of what burned in Australia last year were areas that evolved with fire. But there are concerns that a warming climate may make it harder for some forests to recover. The Caldor fire in California has led to the evacuation of Lake Tahoe, and residents were just allowed to come back during the past couple of days. The smoke in Lake Tahoe is categorized as hazardous and among the worst air quality in the entire world. Lake Tahoe schools are closed due to the harmful air quality. Rather than snow days, Tahoe now has smoke days. Nathan Rott will tell us about his coverage of national and international wildfires and how a warming climate has contributed to wildfires in parts of the world that were once considered out of harm's way. Nathan Rott, thank you for being here. Thank you, Udo. It is my pleasure to be here. Nate, when did you start working for NPR? Almost. Well, that's a complicated question. I've been working at NPR as a reporter for them for probably the last about the last 10 years. Uh, I had a brief stint with them before, um, right when I moved away from Missoula. I uh, moved to D.C. and had a fellowship with NPR in the Washington Post and worked at NPR for a little while after and then and then missed Montana and quit NPR, came back, uh, spent some more time in Montana and Alaska and other places abroad. And then and then NPR wrote me back in. So been there now for about 10 years. Wonderful. Um, what is your passion as a reporter? I really enjoy telling stories. I mean, you know, I think anyone who knows me or my family will tell you we know how to spin a yarn. Um, and so, you know, <laughs> I think uh, I've, I've always really enjoyed telling stories. And I, you know, I love meeting people who are trying to solve the world's problems because as a journalist, I, you know, we spend a lot of time looking at the world's problems and there's a lot of them. We're going to talk about some of them today. Right. Um, but uh but yeah, I think it's it's encouraging to hear the ways that, that we can and learn the ways that we can kind of address some of the issues that we're causing on the on the planet. Right. Was there a pivotal moment in your life where you where you were clear about this is my future? I want to be a reporter. I want to be a journalist. Um when was that? And, and how did you notice that that was your calling? 
It depends on the day still uh, when I know if it's my <laughs> calling. But uh, no, I, I, you know, I did journalism in high school at Sentinel High School in Missoula. Um, I wrote a little bit at the University of Montana Kona or Kaiman, sorry, the Sentinel Kona, the University of Montana Kaiman. Um, so I worked there a little bit. And then, you know, I studied, I studied anthropology and Native American studies at University of Montana. And I, I had a lot of other interests, but, you know, journalism, I think I tell people, young journalists, I, I was really lucky and fortunate and got to fill in as a temp, uh, uh, professor, basically, or at, uh, at the University of Montana last semester for an audio class. And one of the things I told everyone there was that being a journalist is the best job ever because it's really like having every job. You get to go out and meet right. people doing incredible stuff. And I kind of think right. of it like as a job, when I'm feeling down on the job, I think of it as a job shadowing job. I get to go hang <laughs> out with somebody who's at the top of their field for a couple of days. And if I think, holy smokes, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. I, right. I got an in for when I want to go work there. So, um, so yeah, it's, you know, I'm just very curious about the world and, and, it, and journalism is a, they pay you to be curious, which is, which is a pretty cool thing. Right. Now, you mentioned that um, you went to school in Missoula. So you were born and raised in Missoula and educated in Missoula. But just so that our audience knows, uh, we are not sitting in the same room today. We are not. You, no. you are actually in California. I'm in uh, I'm, I'm one of those one of those people. I uh, now in normal times. I work at NPR West, which is NPR's Western Bureau, which is in Culver City, California. And so. So I, I lived here pre-pandemic all of the time. And then during the pandemic, we're all working from home. So I've been spending some time here and then some time up and uh, a lot of time up in Montana with family. A lot of your focus recently was on wildfire. Why? Well, a couple of reasons. I mean, A, one, it's, you know, it's hugely relevant to anyone living in the Western U.S. right now. Uh, fire season has gotten longer and seems to be more frequent and intense and the smoke more oppressive and all of that stuff. And I mean, that, that's all, there's all science showing that all of those things are true too. It's not just how we feel about it. Um, and, and so that's part of it. And I, I'm also just super fascinated with it. You know, I, when I was in college at the university of Montana, actually when I was a high school senior, it was a cool program that the DNRC Montana department of natural resources and conservation and the forest service used to run where, High school, uh, high school juniors going into or high school seniors could take a red card training, like a firefighter basic training, basically during spring break. So I did that and then got a job as a uh, as an initial attack firefighter for the DNRC out of the Kalispell land office. And I did that for all of my summers through college and then a little while after it's a really, it's a good seasonal job, you know, and it's hard to make money as a, as somebody living in Montana and it's a good way to make cash in the summer. Sure. So you've been on the ground fighting fires and you have been, um, well, you have been reporting about fires in our area in Missoula, Montana. And then of course, uh, in recent years for NPR all over the country. Now, where have your fire reporting taken you outside of the United States? So fire reporting, I've, you know, Alaska is part of the U.S., <laughs> but it sometimes feels like it's not. And I got to right. spend a bunch of time um, up north of Fairbanks and south of Fairbanks, so kind of far northern Alaska, doing reporting on how wildfires were affecting permafrost, how they were just affecting ecosystems, uh, in a place where fire used to not, you know, there's always been fire in Alaska, but not to the extent that we're seeing right now. And that's true of kind of far northern reaches in Siberia and other places as well. Um, last year, I was super fortunate right before the pandemic really kicked off. Um, I was able to go down to Australia um, because, you know, I, it's hard it's hard for me to remember uh, anything in this weird time because everybody there's been so much news over the last two years. But but remember last in 2020, Australia had incredible fire seasons. I mean, essentially yes. the entire East Coast right, um, right. of Australia experienced massive fire. So I went out there for a couple of weeks and did a bunch of different stories looking at sort of 
you know, how the ecosystems there are going to be able to recover some of the, you know, similar to how in Montana, you know, some of the forests have evolved with fire. It's the same there in Australia. So some of them were going to be all right, probably others, not so much. And, you know, it was, it was a pretty sobering thing to see. I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of fire in the U S but, but just the scale of the fires in Australia was kind of staggering. And that, that, that would have been my next question or probably still should be is um, what does, what does that look like in a place like Australia compared to the fires that you've seen in California or in Oregon or in Montana or in Idaho? I mean, it was shockingly similar. I mean, the, the vegetation types are very different, right? You have like eucalypt based forests primarily in right. Australia. And then you have a lot of coniferous like pine forests, right? In Montana. Right. And so that has means different fire behavior and different firefighting tactics and all of that. But when it really gets down to its base, it's kind of, it's, it's shockingly similar. I mean, there's fire is a pretty simple process, right? You need oxygen, you need fuel and you right. need an ignition source. And similar right. to the U S Australia has got a bunch of fuel. They got a bunch of vegetation sitting around. They got a bunch of people doing done things on the landscape, similar to how, you know, we are here in the U S which causes a lot of fires. And then, you know, all it takes is a big wind event, which is what happened in Australia. And all of a sudden you're, you know, you're essentially, it's like a bellows for a fire, just blows it across the landscape. And that's, that's what happened in Australia. They were also dealing with a pretty serious drought at the time and a heat wave, which, you know, if that sounds familiar, it's because that's exactly what, you know, the Western U.S. is dealing with right now, which is why we're seeing, you know, such a crazy active fire season in Montana and California and frankly, everywhere, <laughs> you know, West Mississippi. And while I understand that um, it is this sort of a perfect storm of different conditions coming together and fueling a fire and bringing it really out of control and making a small fire that could be contained into something that is uncontainable, mm -hmm. um, there seems to be more to that. I mean, there seems to be sort of global trends when it comes to wildfire and climate change. What, what are those trends that you have observed as a journalist? And, and where are those trends uh, pointing us to? Yeah, I mean, when you look at the when you look at the fact that there's like it's it's unarguable, inarguable that there's more fire occurring, more wildfire occurring right now across the world on a global scale than than in a long time. I mean, there used to be larger fires in terms of like, you know, in, in Africa, in the U.S. pre-colonization, you know, people used fire. They had a very different relationship with it than we do now. Um, but then, you know, over the last. 150, 200 years, we have one completely altered landscape. So we've put roads in, we've built towns and forests, we've built that nice getaway cottage, you know, not just here, but all, I, mean, I saw a lot of that in Australia. Um, I know that's the case. That's a lot of what's burned in, in Greece this year and in some of the fires that have occurred in the Mediterranean. Right. So we've altered the landscape in that way. And that, you know, that it's a political debate now, but like the forest management debate that occurs in the U.S. is largely an argument around that, how we're right. shaping the landscape physically. But then, you know, from a chemical standpoint um, and basically an emission standpoint, we are also hugely changing the planet uh, by releasing greenhouse gas emissions. So our cars, our houses, our cows, I mean, you name it, we're, we're emission dripping machines. <laughs> and so what, right. that's, what that means is that the world's climate is getting warmer. And some of the stuff we're still trying, I mean, scientists are still basically trying to understand what that means for the long-term you know, habitability and the future of the planet. But from a fire perspective, it's pretty clear that the big implications that climate change are going to cause is you're going to have more frequent wildfires burning more intensely in places that usually you would not see fire occur. So when I mentioned earlier, like Siberia, right? Like right. up in the Arctic, not right. a place, usually there's snow cover. Well, there's not as much snow cover now, it's hotter up there. 
So all of a sudden, you know, vegetation that for a long time was locked away under permafrost or under snowpack is now available to burn. And we're seeing that, you know, we saw it last year in Oregon with the fires that occurred on the western side of the Cascades. Right. That's fire has occurred there, but it's super, super rare. And we saw that happen last year. And the potential is totally there for it to happen again, because, you know, our precipitation patterns are changing with climate change. And then, I mean, even in Australia, one of the most honestly sobering things I've ever seen as a journalist was there are these ancient Gondwanan rainforests. So rainforests that have been around since the supercontinent of Gondwana, right? They have persisted through everything. And and they were burned in the fires. So a huge, I can't remember the exact percentage off the top of my head, but it was a significant portion of the ranges of those forests had burned. And we, we visited some of them. So you were going into, I mean, there's this scene in one of our stories where we had walked into a, into a draw that had a little stream running through it. And on one side, it was just, it was like the rainforest, right? If you were a kid like me in Missoula, you know, buying your poster of a, of a tiger or whatever in the forest. It looks just like that, right? On the other side, it was totally scorched. So you have this, like, one of the, what should be the wettest, dankest places on earth has right. been touched by fire, which is, which is just kind of hard to get your head around. Um, sure. So, but then, but then they, there are people that say, well, fires have been around for as long as, as uh, you know, as long as the earth has existed, probably. Yeah, I mean, and, since and, there's and, been enough oxygen in the atmosphere for combustion to occur. <laughs> yeah. Right, so, so what's the big deal? Uh, you know, f- fires have always been there. But, but obviously, um, what you just said is that it's us that have altered the landscape that is the problem. It's yeah. not the fire itself and the fact that, you know, it's always been fires and, and for better or worse, they've, you know, they've uh, uh, caused an area to, uh, to be cleansed and, and then refertilized. And so it probably in a certain uh, nature balance way, this is, all, this is all fine and good. But the fact that, that like you said, that people have, have altered the landscape, that's really then the issue. The fire isn't. Yeah, because the I fires mean- have always been there. It's a thing that I, I constantly try to remind myself when I'm doing these stories is that, you know, I think there is a narrative that's super easy to tell. I mean, it's just a really easy storytelling narrative, right? Which is that you want a good guy and you want a bad guy, right? right. Like it's the reason we love Star Wars. It's the reason we love the Lord of the Rings, right? Like there's, it's very clear who's good and who's bad. Right. And, and when we talk about wildfire as a country, we typically talk about it as this aggressive you know, furious thing ripping across the landscape and torching homes. And it's the brave firefighters who are standing in the way, you know, so it's, it fits very well into that narrative. But I think the real narrative is, is far more complicated, which is that, you know, it's exactly what you're saying, which is that wildfire is not the problem, right? People are the problem here. And wildfire has, fire has existed on, on the planet earth before, you know, while we were still small hominids, right? Like fire is fire is a natural process. And I think it's an important thing for us to remember that we're never going to get rid of fire. Um, And I think a lot of the conversation is, oh, we need more air tankers. We need more of this. How do we do that? You know, it's this idea. It's, it fits into that narrative of we've got to battle this thing into submission. And, and that's not realistic. Um, You know, so one of the things that people in the fire ecology community have really been saying over the last 10 years, if not more, is that, hey, we need to rethink our relationship with this thing. And we need to return to, you know, some of the practices that Native Americans used to use. Like we saw that we talked to people in Australia where that's the same deal with Aborigines there. It's this idea right. that like wildfire is going to be a part of the process. It it actually has a lot of ecosystem benefits, right? Like it, right. the fertilization of soil, all of that stuff. So what if we were able to use fire as opposed to fighting it? And I right. think, you know, there's this guy named Stephen Pine. He's from, you know, he worked at Arizona State University for a long time. And he's, he's kind of the godfather of fire history. You know, he's written the books on everything and knows everything about it. And he, he's been warning for a long time that we're entering what he calls the pyrocene which is like the age of fire, essentially. And he thinks of it as like, you know, the way we talk about the ice age, imagine a fire age where 
things that were never combustible before are going to become more combustible and, and there's going to be a lot more fire on the landscape. So, you know, it's kind of this idea and it's an idea I've heard from a lot of fire ecologists is there's going to be fire. We just need to, we can either decide how we, we can decide how we want it basically. Right. right? So we can either get more aggressive about starting small fires and managing landscapes using fire, or we can continue to treat it like this enemy that we only have to fight four to five months of the year. Meanwhile, that period of time is going to keep growing and growing and growing. The problem's just going to get bigger and it's kicking the can down the road for future generations. Right. Now, what do you think are catalysts that are um, that are propelling this fire issue uh, further? What what are some some catalysts that, aside from the human footprint, um, but then probably closely connected to human action, that uh, that has really been a catalyst for fires to develop? Yeah, I mean, so it's. I think it's it's the climate change, it's the ecosystem change, you know, the landscape change that we're seeing. But I, it's also, you know, one in three homes in the U.S. exist in what's called the wildland-urban interface, which is just basically a guy really a, a poetic way of describing it to me recently described it as this messy middle where forests and homes meet. And so when I'm thinking about Missoula, I think like the rattlesnake, right? Or there's there's lots of places that I think a lot of people listening to this might be able to imagine near their homes that right. that would be designated as wooey, right? Wildland urban interface. And so, you know, one in three homes in the U.S. are already exist in those areas. And it's the fastest growing land use type in the country by far. So it's one of these things where like, you know, I, I am hesitant to talk about hurricanes or, you know, and flooding because there's so much devastation happening right now in Louisiana with that. But, you know, I think people frequently ask in Montana when they hear about, you know, flooding in Louisiana or something like, well, why are people sure. building in a floodplain? Right. Well, that's a bad idea. Well, the exact same thing could be said about, you know, <laughs> building a fancy home in the rattlesnake or, you know, or, or something. It's, it's the exact same concept, but I don't think that that's really clicked for people in a way that, that, you know, and maybe that's, I think that's changing to an extent in California because people up there in Northern California have just experienced, I mean, really six years of just like massive fire after massive fire after massive fire. And so I, I do think there's a little bit of that social reckoning happening in California. And I think, you know, I, Anybody that lived through the smoke in Missoula in 2017, I think probably had thoughts of like, man, maybe I don't want to live here. And I know some people were having that issue earlier this year because it was so right. smoky. And, right. and that's just that's going to be part of the that's going to be part of the reality for now on. And so, you know, how are we how are we as a society going to react to that? What are we going to do about it? What steps are we going to take? Are we going to be proactive? Are we going to be reactive? You know, it's and hard you're for bringing me to up say. a good point, and that is that it's not uh, it's not a, a problem uh, in or of the United States because we had a devastating flooding in Germany um, a couple of months ago, mm-hmm. and it was the same thing. It, um, it it was never that bad before. I mean, you know, rivers go over their uh, normal river beds, and and here and there you have a a, a flooded uh, a street, and you know, and 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 people have adjusted to that. Um, but this was so bad that entire houses were swept away. Houses that had been in certain locations for hundreds of years, as you often find in Germany, houses that were built in the uh, you know 17th, 18th century, and and were perfectly intact. And then uh, you had a you know, a small creek turn into um, a 50 meter wide river and the house was gone. But what also surfaced was in the process of this and in making sense of it and in experts looking at the situation was that people had built houses too close to rivers. Mm-hmm. And they just got lucky for 150 years. They basically got lucky and it never was a problem. But um, there were houses that that should have never been built where they were built. 
Uh, and in this case, it from what you just said, the same could be applied to uh, homes, uh, some homes in the United States where the reason why they fell prey to fire is because they were built in an area where they probably should have not been. Yeah, I mean, I think you bring up a couple of really interesting things there. One, like when we talk about climate change, I feel like so often the debate becomes, well, is it real or not? And what's causing it, You're right? Like, I think, I think in my reporting and in polling, you know, I do feel like the vast majority of people that I interact with, you know, in any part of the country, um, right. believe that climate change is real. They believe that the climate is changing. When you ask them why it's changing, if humans are the drivers of it, you, that it gets a little more muddy. <laughs> right. Um, right. But I think every there's no debate. I, I mean, from a scientific perspective, there is no debate that the climate is changing. Right. So and, and that it's frankly, it's already changed uh, to a right. significant amount. So oh, yeah. so I think what you're talking about is and the thing I think that I've I've trying to focus a little more on my reporting on is instead of talking about the politics of climate change, you know, I think if you went to, like I covered the flooding in, in the Midwest. So I went to Arkansas and Oklahoma, the, you know, the Bible belt where sure. I was talking to people there. And this idea that, you know, if, if somebody came to a city council meeting and said, I got a proposal to deal with climate change, they're going to get laughed out of town. But if they come in and they say, Hey, I've got a proposal to deal with increased flooding. Ah, everybody's like, well, yeah, increased flooding's totally happening. Let's talk about it. And so there's an adaptation side of climate change, which I think is, I mean, frankly, I think that's the future of, of us. Like it's our future is basically figuring out how we adapt and evolve to this world that we've changed. Um, and that's an interesting thing. So with, when you're talking about houses in Germany, right? Like, yeah, maybe the houses shouldn't have been built there, but is there a way that we can adapt those houses into this new normal where, where they would be fine. And I think that's that's a big thing that's happening in the fire conversation with like building with smarter materials and flame resistant right. materials and and using technology to kind of help ourselves, you know, better right. be able to re be resilient to these things. But I think the other big thing that you mentioned that, that I was thinking about is, you know, I, I feel like I've read this a bunch of places in climate. I've heard people talk about it like the human civilization which we think of as ancient on a, like a geological standpoint is very, very, very small, right? We're like, right. we've not been around that long. And right. we've been really fortunate in the period that we have been around that the climate has been, you know, fairly stable. And so we were able to build on riverbanks. We were able to build on shorelines. We were able to build in forests because generally you kind of knew, right? Like, here's what the weather's going to be. Well, we don't know what the weather's going to be anymore, right? And so a lot of these decisions that were made previously, I think we're going to, as a species, have to really have some difficult conversations about like, okay, well, do we rebuild on that riverbank? Do we, if we do, do we build in a more resilient flood adapted way? Do we put them on stilts? Or do we decide, hey, you know what? This is not worth the public money it costs every year to try to, you know, build levees around these homes or, you know, right. pay with disaster funds or whatever. And maybe we should think of another way of doing it. And, you know, that's, I think that's antithetical to the human way, which is, you know, like the idea of retreating is just not, you know, we are a species that explores and kind of frankly dominates our landscape. Right. And so yeah. I think it's a hard thing, you know, I, I, I well, don't know. I, I don't know if, if, if we as a, as a world and a society and sorry to get too deep and philosophical, but I think about this all the time. I just, I wonder. No, no, if, I think, I think that's, that's, those are good thoughts to have, and I agree with you. Is is how you know how have we interacted with our landscape, and and uh, and could we even, if we tried, change our whole attitude on, on how we do it, and and it sort of connects to you know what is possible and and what would cause a lot of challenges. Building a new house, according to new. Uh, knowledge and and scientific data on you know where you should build and where you shouldn't build is one thing but um in the case of germany we're talking about families that have been living in that house from you know the 17th or 18th century for generations and 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 so even if you if you would have approached them uh several years back and you would have said hey 
you're too close to a creek here. If there was ever an issue with, uh, you know, lots of water coming down that creek, your house would be wiped away. They probably would have said, well, thanks for letting us know, but where should we move to? We, this is our house. And, you know, we have lived here for, uh, for four or five generations and we can't go anywhere. So I think there is this aspect of, even if you know, can you adapt? Can you actually do something about it? Totally. I mean, I think it's a, it's an interesting, you know, I, I, when I was covering Hurricane Harvey, for example, right, in Houston, one of the things, I, one of the stories that stuck with me is, you know, we met, I met a woman there who had basically inherited her house from her parents. And it was, mm -hmm. I think, her grandparents' house before that. And she was an African-American right. woman and home ownership, you know, it was a, it's a big deal for sure. like, you know, her grandparents' sure. generation to own a home. And right. so you've got that emotion and history baked into the place, but it also is in a floodplain. And so she is paying insurance rates that are essentially keeping her from being able to afford any escape route, right? Like there's no, you can't create a, a buffer for you to be able to make a different decision if you're just trying to, you know, stop the, stop the flooding, right? Right. <laughs> um, right. So she was stuck with that. And then also nobody's going to buy the house because like, you know, anybody else who comes and looks at it in the disclosure is going to find out that it's in a floodplain and it's been flooded, you know, four times. So, sure. so she's, she's just stuck. And it, it, I mean, it was like this weird purgatory. It felt like this person was living in and it was, it was heartbreaking because it's really hard to imagine, you know, okay. So somebody does approach you and says, Hey, let's, let's move you from here. You know, how do you, that's a really tricky economic question when you're baking in, you know, the cost of a house, but also that emotional and historical, you know, precedent to it. And I, that's a thing that I think has been really interesting when we're having these discussions of managed retreat, which is kind of the weird technical term for like basically retreating away from a, you know, a rising sea lines or whatever, rising right. sea, whatever it is. Right. Um, in, in theory, all good. Yeah. But, but in, in a practical sense, how, how would one do that? Yeah. If one only has one house that one is living in, one doesn't have the luxury to say, well, I'm going to retreat back to my house up in the mountains. Right. And it's, I think it gets to be a question, too, of, I mean, I'm sure you've dealt with this on this podcast before, but, you know, we have some serious immigration issues in this country, right? And it's a, it's a really hotly debated topic. And when you think about even the internal migrations that might need to occur as the climate oh, warms, you know, absolutely. what does that look like? And are people going to be receptive? You know, like are Montanans right. going to be happy if a bunch of, if a bunch more Floridians move up there because they're getting hit with, you know, hurricane after hurricane, probably sure. not. Right. And <laughs> so like, you know, everybody wants to be a friendly neighbor until it drives the housing prices up. Right. And, and then it's like, maybe not so much. So yeah, I think there's there's a lot of really interesting, a lot of interesting things to think about. And and I, I, I am hopeful that I think, you know, there are a lot of really smart people thinking about this and, and talking about it. And I think I do think we've hit a bit of an inflection point as a country where even in the media, you know, I I don't feel like climate change really ever got that much attention. And I think I've heard our, I've heard people say it's getting too much attention now. And I, I'm totally I think there is some truth to the idea that like whenever a natural disaster happens now, we in the media are very quick to call it a climate disaster. Right. And right. and, you know, the attribution science usually takes a little longer than than a deadline on a print story. Right. right. But but we do know what the overall trends are. We do know where it's where it's headed and what we're seeing are examples of that. So I'm hoping that. I'm hoping that more people, you know, when they're sitting around their dinner table or watching football or on Sunday or whatever, they, you know, this is something they talk about. Um, and because I, you know, it's, it's big decisions coming and it's something we all ought to be thinking about. Right. Um, something you said earlier, I just want to go back to uh, the wildfires and the fact that uh, the wildfires are just um, one one component of these things that are uh, that are changing, that are happening, and no matter what we call them, what we label them, in the end, it's a fact that they're there. I'm thinking of uh, the incredible summer of 2021 in Missoula, 
where we have had more days over 100 degrees than ever before. Now, you know, for the last 30 years that I've lived here, if we had a day or two over 100 degrees, and I'm sure you remember that, when you lived here, went to school, uh, that was it. I mean, two days over 100 degrees, that was hot for Missoula, Montana. Yeah. Um, now you can't impress anybody anymore with two days over 100 because I don't even know if anybody kept count uh, this summer. But I do remember that uh, it, it started in June, which, uh, you know, in June, oftentimes in the past, we had snow yeah. uh, still. And, and so there was the, you know, the temperature was going up. And then in July, it was boom, boom, boom. Sometimes we were hammered with two or three days a week of 100 degree weather. And it was so unusual because it's not close to the equator and it's not, uh, you know, in an area where we would say, well, you know, it's a desert-like uh, condition. And so are you surprised? Uh, Montana doesn't get that hot. And so this is, I think, another unique example of, you know, we can label this whatever we want, but the fact is that this has not happened before. It is happening now. And perhaps it's a good question to ask why. Yeah, no. And I mean, I think the point you're making there too, like I, you know, I was in Missoula for a big chunk of the summer and, you know, my folks, they're fortunate to have the means to be able to do this, but you know, they, we've never had, I never had air conditioning in a house in Missoula. You know, I was born there in 1986 and we never had AC. Right. And this last summer, my parents were like, I just, we cannot do it without AC. It's just too hot. Right. Um, and, you know, they're fortunate in that they have the means to be able to go do that. Right. And to buy air conditioning. Right. right. But a lot of people don't. And, and I think that gets to a really important, I mean, we've kind of hinted at it, but I think the equity issue that comes up when we talk about climate change is, is yeah. a huge, huge thing. It's, it's, yeah. you know, we're talking about, when we're talking about wildfire smoke, I've got a story that's going to publish here in a, hopefully a couple of weeks, which basically talks about this idea that like, you know, this idea that when, when there's smoke in the air in Missoula, right, that you should just go inside, shut your windows, shut your doors, and you're going to be okay, is not true. Smoke can, it'll, the PM 2.5, which is the really small kind of fine particulate um, that can get into your lungs and get into your bloodstream and cause all sorts of health issues. The amount of PM 2.5 in a house with the door shut and the windows closed is nearly the same as it is outside during those smoke events. So you can't just shut the windows and doors and expect to be okay. You also need to be actively filtering your air, which again is an equity issue. How can you afford an air filter? Right. Um, and there's luckily there's like fairly cheap DIY, you know, videos you can watch on YouTube and, and create one in your home using a box fan. But, but, you know, it's stuff like that, that I think is going to become increasingly relevant as we go forward. I mean, how many people, I haven't done any reporting on it, but I, you know, I know the numbers in the hundreds of people who died um, of excess deaths because of heat in the Pacific Northwest in Canada and that recent right. heat wave that existed there. And one of the stories I actually did while I was in Australia was a story about the heat wave and and, you know, we talk, we spend so much time talking about wildfires. We spend so much time talking about hurricanes and all the and tornadoes, right? These kind of big, sexy <laughs> acts of nature. But right. the deadliest natural disaster by far, it, more than every other disaster combined, is, is heat. It's heat waves. And, and usually it's older people that don't have as much money who are living in a mobile home or something, and they don't have the means to be able to cool themselves down. And the heat exacerbates a pre-existing condition and they pass away. And it's tragic. I mean, we spent, I spent time with a lady in Australia who was dealing with that very, I mean, she just, we, I sat in her house for an hour and a half talking to her and I was sweat through every layer of clothing I was wearing. It was hot, you know, and she's just, she's stuck. She doesn't have the money to be able to afford AC. She doesn't have the money to move. She doesn't have the money to, to better, you know, insulate her home so it doesn't get so hot and and it's you know and especially in the last year when we've been dealing with COVID too it's it's also tricky because for a lot of people you know when it was super hot or when it was smoky you go to a public place you go to the mall go to a movie go do something where it could you could cool down and that right. hasn't been available to people for for a year and a half so I, I learned a new thing this summer that I didn't I've never heard before 
And I doubt that this, this was something that um, was a common thing before this summer, cooling centers. Yeah. Community yeah. centers that the only purpose is uh, not to provide any entertainment, uh, you know, not to, not, there's no, no deeper meaning to the community activity other than let's cool down together. And, and we have a center that, you know, is in, in a mall or in, in a gymnasium, in a school or whatever, big enough uh, with air conditioning that works very efficiently to say we can accommodate uh, a couple hundred people if we need to, uh, to allow them to uh, cool down together. So therefore, cooling center. I, yeah. 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 I mean, that's I'm, a I, Seattle, I think last year or maybe the year previous, it was the first time they had opened up clean air centers. So when there was when there was bad smoke events, it was like, come here. There's an HVAC system with a filter on it. You can breathe clean air. And, right. you know, Sarah Cofield, who's the air quality specialist for Missoula County in Missoula. I interviewed her for this story that I'm that I'm doing because they looked at public buildings in Missoula and looked at how smoke was able to penetrate those even. And, and she, she was talking about envisioning a future where, you know, what if a business says, Hey, come to our library or come to our bookstore because we do have clean air. You know, we, and, and I think we are going to start seeing some of that, you know, not just from a, you know, the homeowner perspective, like, but, but from a business perspective where, you know, it's the same thing we saw with COVID, right? You, you could look at the rating of whether people were washing the sheets and had hand sanitizer available before you booked a hotel room, right? Or you, you could kind of suss out the place you're going to do your business, you know, and it's the safety that you get from that. And, and I think that's going to increasingly start happening in the climate space too, when it comes to heat and smoke and all these other things. In addition to um, getting a whole bunch of new words that we didn't have before, or word combinations such like cooling centers, uh, you know, with COVID pivoting, and uh, you know, just just words that that weren't used much before or didn't even exist before, um, I fear that, and I would like your opinion on this, um, that if you hear enough about it, there's two things that can happen. One is that you get annoyed because you hear enough about it and you get up and you say, okay, enough. I'm going to do something about this uh, because this is really annoying me. And it's, it's taken over the majority of my life. This, this climate change or whatever we want to label it is impacting me in the summer with the heat. It's impacting me uh, with wildfires. It's impacting me with whatever else. I need to do something about it. The, the other um, the other option might be that if you hear more about it, you, you become numb uh, mm-hmm. because you hear it all the time. And so you go, oh, yeah, you know, we, we're used to it. It's like, you know, it's been like this for several years now. And so what's the big deal? Nothing we can do about it. Let's just, you know, let's just accept it as fact. And, and, and that, I mean, I guess out of this is, is my first question how do you see that? Um, is what evidence is there that we're not getting numb, but that we're actually saying we got to do something? And how does that impact your field of journalism? As in, what are you hoping to look at down the road? How do you keep coverage of wildfires interesting? when it's something we're dealing with every year now? I, I mean, that's a thing I think about in all the time. And I, you know, the people closest to me, I think I probably drive them crazy because I'm constantly trying to talk this stuff out with them, you know? Sure. Um, but, you know, I think, I, I, I worry about the same thing you do, which is that, yes, people will hear, you know, there's a, I think some people will experience an, a, a bad smoky summer and decide to take action. And who knows what that looks like? Maybe they buy an air filter. Maybe they vote a different way. Maybe they, you know, whatever it is, right? Like, right. I, I think, I think there is a degree of that, but, you know, I also, I've covered probably almost a dozen mass shootings in the U S right. Where, we've something happens and you, you know, there's a lot of conversation about some sort of reform or change of any type, right. Whether no matter where you are politically and that, that doesn't happen, it's kind of intractable. And so I, I do worry that there's a chance that climate change, I mean, it, it is intractable to this 
to this point, right? We haven't taken big, bold action. The, the Biden administration is has talked a lot and, and made a lot of promises, but a lot of those things are going to take an act of Congress. And, and Congress just passed the infrastructure bill, and there's some climate resiliency and climate adaptation stuff in there, but not nearly the amount that that you know climate scientists and climate economists say we really need to be putting in. Right. Um, but I mean, to your bigger point too about how you keep people from being numb, you know, I think particularly with fires, that's the thing I worry about because you know the narrative. Most of the stories that you hear on fires are, you know, it's it's burning X a num- number of acres. It's threatening this many homes. Here's the person who had to flee their home. You know, here's the incident commander right. and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I do think people hear that story over and over and over and over again. And it and it people do get numb to it. So I've really made an effort, you know, over the last couple of years to try to do different fire stories. So focusing on the smoke impacts, the health impacts of smoke. Um focusing on, you know, are there better ways that we can build? Are there better ways that we can think about building? Um, You know, another thing that like this idea of changing our relationship and changing the narrative that we have as a country with fire is something I think about constantly. And I try to, I, I don't think, I mean, this is a challenge somebody will probably prove me wrong on, but I feel like there hasn't been a story I've done in the last two or three years where I have not said that that fire is part of the landscape and it's part of the ecosystem because I do feel like that's a thing as, as media, it's, it was, it's responsible, you know, for us just to remind people of that. Um, and I do think, you know, tweaking some of the stories to kind of incorporate what we know now helps right. a lot and, and can hopefully, you know, bug out some of the numbness, but you know, I report on this stuff all the time and I get on Instagram at night and totally zone out watching dance videos or whatever, <laughs> you know, like I, I need to escape from it too. So, um, so I don't think there's anything wrong with listening to climate news and sometimes and just being like, Holy smokes, this is too much for me. You know, I need to, I need to take a break. Um, right. because I, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's stressful. And if you really start and you start, you know, if you really start to think about it, um, it's a, it's a pretty concerning state of being that we all are, you know, kind of tenuously existing in. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't have an answer for you, Udo. I wish I did. No, it, it, and I, I wasn't, I wasn't necessarily hoping for the answer, but just, and you did that, just, just the reaction from somebody who, who is doing it, who is, who is reporting on fires and, and the fact that there must be, a concern on, you know, how how do I keep this interesting? How do I keep this so that it matters to people, and that they're actually listening to me, and they're not uh, they're not searching for another station when when I report on a fire. And I think you you described this really well. It's, it certainly worked for me because I would, for one, like to learn more about, uh, you know, what can we change and. Uh, on on building houses and and what can we do that may down the road fuel a fire, but it's not necessarily about the fire itself. It's sort of in a in a way fire prevention from a very unique angle. Yeah, and, and I, I mean I think to the point of some of what you get at with this podcast of talking to you know international communities and thinking about it inter- on a on a global scale. I think right. that's been super interesting in fire is that the crazy fire seasons that everybody's experiencing is, is leading to a, to a huge amount of cooperation between countries on how are you dealing with fire? How, I mean, we have American firefighters went to Australia, Australia fire, you know, like, right. And that stuff's happened for a long time, but I do think that some of these, you know, there's different forms of, there's different types of governance. There's different types of, you know, like what, what it might be politically intractable in the U S might be politically tractable somewhere else. And sure. so I think it'll be interesting to see in the fire space and in a lot of the climate space, if, if different countries take bold and aggressive action and, and make a meaningful change right. um, in dealing with fire or dealing with something else, is that something that then, you know, spreads? And I, I do think that's a lot of what's going to end up happening with climate change is that different places are going to try different things. And it's kind of, you know, it's the proverbial throwing, throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks, you know? Right. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I, it, it's a, uh, yeah, I think the thing that stresses me out the most thinking about it is just the time frame, because, you know, right. when we talk about, it's not that time is on our side. 
time is not on our side. Time hasn't right. been on our side. For, I mean, we've we've known about climate change for for more than 40 years at this point, you know, and, right. and we have not right. done much. And so right. the, it's. And I, and I really desperately want to avoid um, the the podcast today ending in in basically you and I realizing that we're screwed. Yeah. And, and that yeah. there isn't there isn't much um, that we can do. So that then would bring me to my question, trying to end this on a happy note. Um, what can we do? And, and you just said a lot of it comes from leadership, uh, leadership of countries that, that can decide with uh, you know, the help of a Congress to, to make certain rules and, and, uh, and, and pass down certain regulations that, that will help in that. Yeah. But aside from that, and this is super important, I agree, but is there something that the listener of this podcast could do? That Certainly. if thousands and millions of people will do it, will actually make quite a bit of change. What could you, is there a glimpse of hope, Nate, that you could, that you could send us off with? Yeah, I mean, I do think, you know, what, the point you were kind of making before, I, I, I ask this question all the time of, of people that work on climate issues. And, and the number one thing I hear is vote, you know, because it will, like, societal change will take government, it, I mean, it, you need the government to be involved with that. And with, especially when we're talking about the types of capital that would be needed to, to shift the way that we do business. Um, so that's, yes, vote. Um, and but I, I also think like, you know, you can make personal decisions in your life about like, you know, maybe you do own two homes and you, you don't need to go. You don't need that anymore. Right. Maybe you, you try to limit your impact in that way. Maybe you limit the number of flights you take. Maybe you really enjoyed not having to interact with people during COVID. And you're like, hey, I love this Zoom thing. I'll do this forever. And you, you do that a little more. Um, you know, it pains me to say as somebody who you know, if, if I had my last meal choice, it'd probably be a really good, you know, half pound burger from Knapp's Grill or something. Right. And but eating less meat does a lot. You know, agriculture and, and meat production in particular is has a huge impact on the climate. So even just saying, hey, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to only enjoy a burger once a week or whatever, you know, could make a really big difference. Um, and then I, I honestly, you know, it, it sounds stupid and small but like i really think having conversations about this stuff with other people because you know i think is one thing that's become very clear to me in the last year is that like as a journalist right i'm trying to get the facts and i'm trying to report them to people but there's a lot of people in the country who do not care what a journalist says and you know and and frankly disagrees just on principle and and i i don't agree with that but i get it you know and i respect their their position um but I, I really do. So I, I think in order for people to really grapple with this stuff to the degree that we need them to, you need to start talking about it and talking about it with people, you know, you trust, you love is is hugely impactful because there's nothing I'm going to be able to say as some dude who comes on your radio, you know, that's going to change the way you think about things. Really, I don't, I don't think I wish that was the case, but uh, I don't have that power. Um, <laughs> but, you know, if if your granddaughter or your sure. aunt or whatever comes and says, Hey, you know, I've been really struggling with the smoke this summer and it's got me thinking, you know, I, I think that, I, I think that goes a really long ways and, and right. should not be, you know, dismissed out of hand as much fun as those conversations are to have around the Thanksgiving dinner table. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, good point, Nate. And I, I appreciate your, um, your, your hopeful message there at the end that uh, while some of these things are uh, not solvable uh, at, at the individual level, let's say, um, the individual does have the power to uh, cause change with other individuals and actually becoming strong enough as a movement uh, to say, yes, we, we, can, we can change this. And uh, I remember, and I'm, I'm, every time I go grocery shopping, reminding myself of the fact that we actually have uh, cloth bags and, and plastic crates that, that 
we had for years uh, that you can pop up and you can put your groceries in and you don't need the bags. Yeah. And, and, but, but oftentimes, you know, I, I have to remind myself because the things are in the trunk and, and I get out of the car and I'm halfway to the grocery store. By the time it thinking, hits you. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And I'm thinking, ah, I, I forgot the uh, reusable um, containers. And, and uh, so I go back to the car and get them. But it's things like this, I think, that, um, that everybody can make a difference. And this is just one example, but in general, to be mindful of these things. And so, yeah, I, I think it's, I, it's important just to remember you have agency. I mean, especially when right. we're talking about climate stuff, I think it's so right. easy to feel overwhelmed and feel like there's not, but I mean, I, I try to remind folks, like the reason the climate is changing is because of us, because of what we are collectively doing. Right. And so we can change that by changing what we do. You know, that's, right. it's, right. it's really, it's, it's not, I think it can, it feels a lot more complicated than it is, you know? Right. And, right. Um, and so I think that's just an important thing that I try to remind myself and I try to think about and, and I'm reminded of when I go reporting all the time and talk to people, you know, that, that we do have agency and people have the ability to change their behavior. They just need to know about it. Um, and that's where I think the conversation, you know, really, really helps out kickstart that whole process. Right. No, and I agree with you. And of course, my hope with uh, these podcasts is that um, you get people thinking about something, and and uh, you know as a as a just offering a different perspective uh, on something, and and what happens after that, I have no control over. You have no control over when you report uh, a story, and and uh, you know it's sort of it it happens on its own, and one hopes for the best that it actually sinks in and makes a difference, and. Um, makes a person go, wow, I didn't know there's something that I can actually do about this. So um, I appreciate you bringing this to our attention today and, um, and giving us the local, the national, and the international perspective, which I always try, in international <laughs> voices, to, uh, to uh, at some point to infuse. So um, your Australia example, I remember these pictures that were satellite images. That, yeah. that showed um, individual fires as red dots. The problem was that there were so many red dots next to each other that it was a red blanket. Yeah. And you couldn't even make out individual fires in Australia anymore because all it was was like a belt, like a, like a blanket of, yeah, it was a of different, dots. A different ring of fire. <laughs> a different <laughs> ring of fire. And I just, you know, I, I remember looking at this going, this can't possibly be fires that many fires in at one time but of course it was and and so i remember looking at that satellite image and 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 learning a lot about australia and what they were going through uh in regard to wildfires and that um a lot of it sounded very familiar so thanks for uh sharing that with us your experience and um and uh and for your time today i really appreciate it no, Udo, thanks for doing what you do. I, uh, I love Missoula from the, the bottoms of my heart. So um, doing anything that, that hopefully folks in Missoula and other places will listen to, I'm, I'm all about. So thank you for doing what you do and giving me an thank opportunity. You, all right, see ya. Take care. Bye-bye. Many thanks to Nathan Rod, journalist for National Public Radio, for his time and for talking to me today about his national and international reporting on wildfire. This was the second part of a three-part series focusing on cultures and the environment. Before I sign off today, I would like the listeners to know that the Worldview film series will be back at the Roxy this fall with the theme Cultures in Flux, and the kickoff film Human Flow will screen on Monday, September 13th at 7 p.m. The film is sponsored by the International Rescue Committee, and free to the Missoula community. There are three more screenings scheduled for this fall, all free to the public because of generous sponsors near and far. Two things that are new this fall with the Worldview film series, following each film, Marisa Diaz-Wayne from Merlin CCC will facilitate a community conversation inspired by questions raised in the movie. The conversations have the aim of creating a space for thoughtful dialogue, reflection, and sharing. 
Every person through the door at each Worldview film night receives a raffle ticket for a dinner for two at a Missoula restaurant. Winner of the raffle prizes will be announced at the end of the community conversation. To the listeners near and far, please join me again next month for a new episode of International Voices. As always, thank you for listening. Those of you who are regularly tuning in to International Voices know, being of German descent, I usually end with a German farewell. Danke schön fürs Zuhören. International Voices is brought to you by Global and Cultural Affairs of Arts Missoula and the Trail, 1033. This and previous International Voices podcasts can be found at artsmissoula.org and the trail, 1033.com. Mm-hmm.